You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hi, church. My name is Sophia Samuelson, and I serve in the preschool ministry. Today, I will be reading from Genesis 35, verses 1 through 15. If you would please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have one, there is one in the seat in front of you. Genesis 35, verse 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below, Be- under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from over your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, sister. Good morning, church family. Good to see you this week. I'm glad you're here. School has started for most places. College is on the brink here. It's 110,000 degrees outside. So that means vacations have ended and everybody's back at church. And so we are uh, tight here this morning, uh, but we're so glad you're with us. Um, If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shea Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here at Northway, and just grateful you're with us. We are in the book of Genesis. We've actually been here for about a year and a half, uh, so we're getting towards the tail end of Genesis. But if you're new here for the first time, I'm glad you're here. I'll catch you up in about 30 seconds uh, where we've been. But Genesis, we are looking at the promise of God to bring about a savior who will forgive us of our sins and undo sin's curse. That's what Genesis is about. We are tracing God's promise through various lines, genealogical lines that ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ. And along the way, we're getting some insights into some of these families that God has chosen to bring about this promise. And we have been zeroed in on the family of Jacob. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's where we've been. And Last week in chapter 34, we uh, encountered an awful story 
about the unintended consequences of compromise and indifference. We saw Jacob leading his family after 20 years, uh, coming back now into the promised land that God had called him to. And Jacob promised in chapter 28 that when he came back, when God had proved that faithfulness that God was gonna prove to him, that he would go to Bethel, where he had encountered God once before, and he would set up shop there and worship the living God. However, upon coming back into that promised land, Jacob compromises. He stops 20 miles short and he holds up in the city of Shechem, a place where he was never supposed to be. And he wanted to do business there with the Canaanites. And the result was awful tragedy. Put his family in harm's way. His daughter ends up getting assaulted by the prince of Shechem, Shechem himself. And Jacob does nothing about it. His indifference, his passive indifference is all over the place. And so his sons, two of his sons in particular, Simeon and Levi, decide that they're gonna act on his behalf and they're gonna carry out justice. But it wasn't justice, it was wrathful vengeance as they went and slaughtered not just Shechem, but every man in that town and plundered all their possessions. And it was a sad commentary of this season in Jacob's life that was marked by backsliding. And backsliding, compromise, indifference always has unintended consequences. And it seems as if all of God's promises now might be lost here in the book of Genesis. But in chapter 35, we see things begin to turn. God is going to take this backslider and utterly change his life. And this story is about the grace that God has for the backslider. And in doing so, chapter 35 is gonna begin to close out a big section of the book of Genesis that we've been looking at. Remember, Genesis is not divided by chapters. Our Bible, every book has a lot of chapters in it. Those are fantastic. They are not inspired. Those were inserted in the 1200s by literary scholars to help us find our way through the Bible, thank God. Just like the US post office gives us address numbers so we can know where each other lives. So this is how God arranges this is not by chapters, but by the Hebrew word toledotes. Toledotes is a Hebrew word that means generations, means generations. Um, And so there are 10 toledotes in the book of Genesis. And these are the generations of, you're gonna see that 10 times. And we're tracing these families. We're tracing families of where the promise of God is going to go through, through these generations. And we're looking at other families where we're assured the promise is not going to go through. And so this chapter in 35 is gonna end the eighth Toledot in the book of Genesis. And it's the Toledot of Isaac, the generations of Isaac, which are his two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we're ending that narrative. We'll conclude uh, next time with chapter 36 and the Toledot of Esau that kind of bookends it. But all that is setting us up for the final Toledot, which starts in chapter 37. And it is the Toledot of Jacob himself, his sons, the 12 sons, but in particular, two of them will zero in on the, the uh, Joseph who's gonna rescue his people. And then particularly the line of Judah, in which the Messiah's line will continue. So that's where we're at here. But in terms of Jacob and his story and his backsliding from last week, there are three movements in this text we're gonna look at in Jacob's life. And that is repentance, renewal, and return. Those are the three movements we see in this chapter of God's grace on Jacob's life. First, let's look at 
what repentance looks like, starting in verses one through eight. Notice how God initiates here. God, whose name was not mentioned in chapter 34, very strong right out of the gate. God said to Jacob, arise. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, not in Shechem. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves, change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And they, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon all the surrounding cities so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people were with him and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bachuth. So here in this first section, God calls Jacob to repentance. Jacob was not where he was supposed to be and he was not worshiping God as he was to worship God. And so he, God, calls Jacob to Bethel, away from Shechem, to go worship there. And here we see Jacob is now going to repent of the two major things that he was guilty of in chapter 34, compromise and indifference. His compromise is that he didn't go all the way to Bethel. He stopped 20 miles short. He wanted to hang in that Canaanite city and do business there. And that was his compromise. And now he's gonna repent by going to Bethel where he was supposed to go from the very beginning. And he also is going to repent of his indifference towards the sins and even the needs of his family that he was so passive in in chapter 34 by calling them to repentance now. And notice the three things he calls his entire family, including himself, to repentance to. We see it there in verse two. Three things, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, change your garments. These are three chief characteristics of true repentance. First, put away your foreign gods. Now, if you've been reading this for a while, you're going, what foreign gods? What, what is this? You've been worshiping Yahweh. Where are the foreign gods? Where did those come into play for Jacob and his family? And if you remember, go all the way back to chapter 31, when they were leaving his uncle's house, Laban, and heading back towards the promised land after 20 years of being there, on their way out, one of Jacob's wives, Rachel, steals her father's household gods. These, these idols that were worshiped from the days of Ur. And she takes them with her. She finds out she can't really let go of that past. Yes, I want to follow Yahweh. I want to serve the living, the one true and living God. Oh, but I've, all I've ever known are these other gods. And I've, I've perceived them to bring best blessing on my life. And so I want to take them with me. And certainly this has now like a yeast spread its way through Jacob's family, only to be anchored when they got to Shechem and saw all the Canaanites doing the same thing. 
And so they have been living in duplicitous worship this whole time. And God calls Jacob and Jacob calls his whole family to put away these foreign gods once and for all. Now that would have sounded awfully familiar, by the way, to the original readers who are reading this, the Israelites who had just been delivered from Egypt, who are standing on the banks of the Jordan now about to go into the promised land. They've heard Mount Sinai and God giving the law. And what is it God said right out of the gate to a bunch of people who just left the pagan idolatry of Egypt? The 10 commandments and the first three commandments revolve around worshiping only one God. The first two explicitly, you shall have no other gods before me. There shall be no secondly, any carved images that you're going to worship. And so God is to have unrivaled devotion in his people's lives. And so right now in this moment, he is reorienting his people's hearts to be single-minded in their devotion towards him. This, by the way, is why idolatry is so often linked to adultery in the scriptures because in marriage, we're not to go having multiple loves. We're to be devoted to one person in the covenant of marriage, which is clearly obviously being violated even in this passage with Jacob. But we're to have one love. When I married my wife, when we stood at the altar, in addition to doing our vows, we exchanged rings. And as we exchanged those rings, I declared to her with this ring as a symbol of my love, I pledge myself to you, forsaking all others and holding you only for myself. And the ring, as the ring is a circle, it represents an unending covenant. And so is my fidelity towards my wife in a one one wife, one marriage, one love. And in the same way, this is why this is linked so often in the scriptures to idolatry because God has made a covenant with us. And he does, he is a jealous God, a righteously jealous God of his love. He wants us all to himself and vice versa. As the one true living God, he will not be shared amongst many. And so he is called and all the people of Jacob's family are called to put away their foreign gods, no more divided hearts. One God from this point forward. And secondly, part of repentance, he says, is then we need to purify yourselves. Purification was the process of making one clean. It's the idea that your pre previous way of living was polluted, was dirty, and now it's in need of washing. And so to signify this cleansing that is meant to happen on the inside of our hearts, God's people would signify that oftentimes by washing themselves in living water. Again, the original readers, the Israelites who are reading this, this would have totally made sense to them because in the Mosaic law at Sinai, all these ceremonial laws were giving them about washings about when they were to cleanse themselves before they could even go into the temple into the presence of God or the tabernacle. They, they must wash and oftentimes they would wash in mikvahs, these ceremonial baths. Again, signifying this cleansing that's there as a symbol of repentance, of death to the old life and, and alive to the, to the new. Later, John the Baptist would take this same idea into baptism when he's down at the Jordan River calling all the nation to repent of their sins and to symbolize that by washing themselves in the Jordan. Death to the old life, alive to the new of the Messiah who's coming in Jesus Christ. 
And so there is a call to purify yourselves. And then thirdly, he says, change your garments. It wasn't enough to just take off the old life. You have to put on the new one. And, and, and again, I mean, think about it just in pragmatic terms. Any of us who would work all day and get sweaty and nasty, dripping sweat in our clothes, and then we go take a shower, maybe you went to the gym, and then you take a shower, you're not gonna get out of that shower and go put back on your old sweaty clothes unless you're in middle school or some college students. That's, that's the only exception. But otherwise, you're not gonna do that. You're gonna put on new garments, right? And this was a way of signifying your new identity, and so in the same way for us, when you look at these, these three things Jacob calls his family to, certainly would have had meaning for the original readers as they're about to go into the land of Canaan themselves, of what it looks like to put away foreign gods that you had worshiped in Egypt, wash, be clean, and to put on new garments. In the same way for us, this is the process of what repentance and sanctification in Jesus Christ looks like. When you and I have strayed, when we have given our allegiance to um, another God, to lesser loves, and we've allowed our affections to run to lesser loves, God calls us in his grace to break up with those idols, to break up with the things that we have transferred our allegiance to and reserve that love for him and him alone. That's why Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, beloved, flee from immorality. He doesn't say, see how close you can get to it and resist. He doesn't say, co-mingle with it for a little while and have shared, shared affections. No, he says, flee from it. Break up with those idols. Give your heart unreserved to him. And then having now put our trust in Jesus Christ, we know now we are cleansed of all of our sins, no longer by ceremonial baths. We're not laying out mikvahs outside of Northway here to get washed up so we can come in and worship together. No, we know we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul said this to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you, but you were cleansed, you were washed. You were washed. 1 John even tells us you're washed by the blood of Christ on the cross. That is where we find our cleansing, not in our own works, not in our own moral merit, not in our own behavior. We find our cleansing through Jesus Christ and what he has done by putting our trust in him and having his righteousness transferred to us. And then now, thirdly, having been cleansed and made new, we put on our new identity in Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul put it when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter four. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed by the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, it's, it's a taking off of one thing, but it's putting on the new. It's taking off the old self that tried to find our righteousness through our own merit, our own performance, but really was polluted and dirty. No, now receive the new garment that Christ has given you by his grace, the, the righteousness that comes from him and put on that new garment and walk in it daily in the newness of life. All of this, these three things mark what true repentance really is. True repentance is not just feeling bad about what you've done. True repentance means turning to Christ for his grace and his forgiveness receiving his cleansing 
and then embracing your new identity by changing the direction that you were once heading in to the path that Christ has laid out for us. And this is exactly, by the, by the way, the response of the family of Jacob. They heed that in verse four, when they take all their idols, they even take some of their earrings, which you don't know what's going on there, probably some pagan connotation of what they had, like some sort of amulets and jewelry and things they had, but they go and they bury them in Shechem. They leave them in Shechem. And now they move on towards Bethel, where there they will re-erect a new altar, just as Jacob had done that first time, and they will worship the one true God there. Now there's a death that is mentioned in verse eight. We're gonna come back to that in a minute, but I want you to see now here at Bethel, we move from repentance to renewal. Watch what God does with Jacob there in Bethel, starting in verse nine. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. I want you to notice this encounter that Jacob has with the Lord is nearly identical to the encounter that he had with him some 20 uh, years earlier, back in chapter 28. And it parallels other encounters that Jacob's grandfather and father had with God as well. Abraham and Isaac had similar encounters. And these are often repeated in scripture. We don't just see it one time, but we see the same encounter happen again. And and the, the pattern of those encounters are almost always the same. God Almighty appears, tells them to be fruitful and multiply. I'm gonna bless you with offspring and, and promises nations, descendants are gonna come from you. That you can't even outnumber. And even promises that kings are gonna come through your line. Not only are we gonna see kings, kings of Israel specifically through this line, we're gonna see the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Kings are gonna come through this line and promises them land for their descendants and gives them a new name from Abram to Abraham, from, from Jacob to Israel, which means striving with God because you wrestled with God and you won because you clung to him, you strived with him. And so not only you, Jacob, but all your descendants will be associated with the name Israel from now on, not Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. You're one who strove with God. That's your new identity. And then followed by an altar, and a pouring out of oil and worship of the living God. God does this two times with Abraham, does this two times with Jacob. Why the repeat encounters so many times in the book of Genesis? Liter uh, liberal scholars wanna say it's because these are made up and these were inserted in later times. Not that at all. These are intentionally put on repeat because God wants his people to know 
I am not the one who has drifted. You have. I am the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And I want you to know that when you drift, I am still going to be faithful to you and I will double down on my promises even after you've drifted. God knows that as his sheep, we are going to wander and we are in constant need of reminders and renewal towards his promises. Paul said the same thing, by the way. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter three, verse one says, to write the same things again is really no trouble for me. Why? Because it's a safeguard for you. I have no problem telling my kids 800 times that I love them, that I'm here for them because I know it's a safeguard for them. The original readers were in need of these reminders too as they were about to go into the promised land and obey God and taking it and facing all sorts of threats around them. The temptation to compromise and backslide is all over the place in the scriptures. And they need to be reminded of God's promises. You and I are also in constant need of reminder and renewal towards the promises of God. It's one of the reasons why here at Northway we do communion every week. Not because, quote, it'll get rote and routine and won't it lose its meaning. No, it's the exact opposite. Because we're like sheep, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And every week we need to be reminded it is not our own works that save us. It is God's relentless covenant that never stops pursuing us. Offered in Jesus Christ and his shed blood that has saved us. And so we see Jacob now move from repentance at Shechem to now renewal at Bethel. But there's a third piece at the end of this text that is now gonna show us his return, specifically to his father at Hebron. I want you to look at this return. It's an interesting text, a, a sad text too, in verse 16 and following. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Ben-Hamin, Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilna, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah to Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilna, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. 
Now the days of Isaac were 180 years and Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So after spending some time at Bethel worshiping God as they were called to do, they now begin making their way down south to Hebron in, in order to reconnect with Jacob's dad. You can see on this map, just gives you a visual of where this progression goes from the time that Jacob and his family left uh, Laban, the uncle, out to the east. They're coming back in now. They cross over the Jordan. And on the other side, they're supposed to start going south down to Bethel, but they stop short at Shechem. And now after repenting and renewal, they return and they're heading down south, ultimately towards Beersheba, but they're heading to Hebron where his dad Isaac is. And we find out that as they are journeying south, about the time they get in between Bethel and Hebron, it's right there where Ephrath is, which is known today as Bethlehem. And as they're there, we find out Rachel, Jacob's wife is pregnant with their second child, Jacob's 12th son overall. And as they're nearing Bethlehem, she goes into labor. And sadly, as many women did in these ancient days, she dies in childbirth. But shortly before she dies, she names her son Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. She tells you what was on her heart in the pain that she was in knowing she was losing her life, but she was giving birth to the next generation. But Jacob is going to officially rename him Ben-Hamin or Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Right hand was the source of strength and posterity. And so now once Benjamin is born, in one sense, this 12th son officially concludes the 12 sons of Jacob, which make up and will make up the 12 tribes of Israel as we see listed there in verses 23 to 26. Now I mentioned there was a death back in verse eight and it's now followed by two more deaths at the end of this chapter. These three deaths are interesting as they all connect in relationship somehow to Jacob. You have Deborah who died in verse eight. Deborah was Jacob's mom's servant. So Rebecca's servant. She probably was the one who helped raise Jacob and Esau, very dear to him. Then we see in verse 18, Rachel, Jacob's wife dies. And we see in verse 29, Isaac, Jacob's dad dies. Curiously, we have no recording of Jacob's mom dying, Rebecca. We know she's already passed at this point, more likely, but Genesis 49 tells us that she did indeed die, was buried at Machpelah, the same place where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives are buried, but no recording of her death. But these three significant deaths are what let us know that this Toledot section from chapter 25 to 35 is now ending for the story of Isaac and the narrative of Jacob as well. And we're now beginning to pivot, starting in chapter 37 again, towards Jacob's sons, Joseph in particular and Judah we'll zero in on. But all of this is why I think what's mentioned in verse 22 is so interesting. I don't think it's an accidental inclusion. The story of Reuben who goes and sleeps with Bilna. Now, who are these people? Reuben 
is Jacob's oldest son. Out of the 12 sons, Reuben's the oldest. And he's the son of Leah. But Jacob goes and he sleeps with Bilna. Bilna, who was Rachel's servant, also one of Jacob's wives, who was also the mother of Dan and Naphtali, which is two of Jacob's half-brothers. Are you confused yet? What's going on here? This is basically in one verse, every daytime show that existed in the 90s and early 2000s. Completely complicated and jacked up. But at first, it seems like this is here. Maybe this is just another story of Reuben went rogue and this is some lustful incest where he goes and sleeps with one of his dad's concubines. But I think this placement here is actually indicative that this was more of a power grab than it was just some lustful pursuit. And here's what I mean by that. Remember, Reuben is the oldest son. He is in the line. As the oldest son, he's the primogenitor. He's the one that's going to receive, should receive the inheritance and the blessing of the father above and beyond all the other sons. All that inheritance goes to him, right? But remember who his mom was. His mom was Leah. And she was the least favored wife of Jacob. Which, by the way, should not even be a statement. There should be no least favored. There should just be one. Just be one, just to be clear. But this is Jacob. Leah is the least favored of his wives who just died, though. Rachel. She was the most favored of his wives. So who's probably next in line to be the new matriarch in this equation? Probably it's Bilna, who's the closest to Rachel, her servant. She's probably next in line. And so who might Reuben fear that the blessing might go to? Because we're in another line now. It won't go through my line through Leah because dad doesn't like her. He likes Rachel. She's gone, but Bilna's raising up. So it's probably one of her kids, Dan or Naphtali. And so many scholars believe this is actually a power grab opportunity for Reuben to grab Bilna as a wife, have a kid through her and ensure that he's gonna be the primary line from this point forward. And as twisted as that whole thing sounds, we actually see this play out in other places in scripture. Second Samuel 16, same thing happens with Absalom over David. But regardless, here's what we're meant to see. Whatever this power grab is, it was never Reuben's choice to begin with whom God is going to assign the line of blessing to. It is God's decision. And when we try to intervene and use our own works to grab hold of the promise of God rather than trusting in his sovereign elective grace, then everything ends up backfiring. And certainly that's what happened. You know, in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is on his deathbed and he's pronouncing blessing over all 12 of his sons, we already saw two of them didn't get blessing because of what they did last week, Simeon and Levi and their rebellion. But when he speaks to Reuben, his firstborn, listen to what he says, Genesis 49, three and four. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. However, you are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. And he went up to my couch. So spoiler alert, Reuben's not gonna get the blessing. 
number one in line is not gonna be the blessed line that God is gonna choose for the inheritance and the promise of a Messiah, nor will it be number two and number three, Simeon and Levi, because of what they did back in chapter 34. You know who the blessing's gonna go to? It's gonna go to the number four in line. And not through Rachel's side that you would expect, but number four through Leah, the unfavored one. God is gonna choose Judah to be the one whom this line of promise will continue, of which our Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come through that line. And he's gonna use Joseph as blessing, as the one who's gonna rescue his own people in the days ahead. This text essentially is what's setting up for the final act of Genesis chapter 37 through 50 that contains God's plan of redemption by the hand of Joseph through the line of Judah. But all of that, not before we see those last couple of verses when Jacob finally makes his way to Hebron and we see Jacob finally reconnect with his father after 20 years. Jacob hasn't seen Isaac in 20 years. And he goes down there. We first saw Jacob reconcile with his brother back in chapter 33, Esau. And now we see the two of them together in reconciliation with their father after 20 years. And they bury him. Isaac breathes his last at the ripe old age of 180. And then he's buried there in Hebron, the same cave, cave of Machpelah. You can go there today, the tomb of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives are there, buried in that cave. Chapter 35, though, this This chapter is actually a beautiful ending for an otherwise very rocky life for Jacob, the deceiver. It's a story of the unthwarted promises of God to preserve and continue a promised line that will bring forth our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just consider Jesus's genealogy. Get some time this week. Go read Matthew 1. Read the genealogy of Jesus from Abraham all the way to Jesus all you see is it's a whole genealogy filled with jacked up people. And I don't know about you, but that's somewhat encouragement to me. That our savior not only can come through a line of jacked up people, of sinners and rebels like you and I, but he came so that he could go to the cross to be able to redeem those very sinners who are so jacked up like you and I. It's a beautiful testimony of God's faithfulness. Yes, man's sin but God's faithfulness that is stronger. It is a story, in my opinion, of chapter 35 of God's grace for the backslider. God's grace for the wanderer. After watching one of the worst backsliding episodes in our entire Bible in chapter 34, now we get to see Jacob's repentance, renewal, and return to the promise and the blessing of the Lord. And it's beautiful. And I think certainly that would have meant a ton for the original readers, but I think it means a ton for us in this room. There is a hope in this chapter for every one of us in this room who have drifted in our relationship with God. No matter how far that you have wandered, no matter how much you have sinned, no matter how much you have turned your back upon God, he has never turned his back on you. And he is waiting to receive you. He is waiting to restore you. If you'll only repent and turn of your sin and turn back to Jesus, he is there with his grace and his mercy that is available for you. Not just for other people, for you. This is the good news of the gospel is that none of us are beyond God's reach. 
I'm reminded of some of the key texts that speak to this promise. Listen to some of these texts and just let them wash over you. Joel chapter two, verse 13, return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Hosea 6, 1, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Isaiah 55, seven, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Of course, famously, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. He doesn't say, if you'll return to me, then I'm gonna shame you the rest of your life for what you've done. You should have known better. No, if you'll just return, great is my pardon. Great is my mercy and grace towards you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. How would I ever forsake you? I've purchased you through the blood of my own son, Jesus Christ, to redeem you in this family. How could I ever turn my back on you? Just come home, repent, be renewed and return. That's the theme. And every one of those texts I just read, they're from the Old Testament. We tend to think, oh, the Old Testament, God's God of wrath. New Testament, God's God of mercy and grace. No, he's the same God yesterday, today and forever. He's never changed. He's always been patient and merciful and forgiving towards the sinner who is willing to repent and come home. You know, I'll say this as we close here. We sang the song earlier, Come Thou Fount. Y'all know that hymn? Remember that hymn is written in 1758 by Robbie Robinson. And here's the story that many of us probably don't know. Robbie Robinson, at eight years old, he was abandoned by his father in England. He was an orphan He went and lived on the streets, joined a gang and lived on the streets for the next 12 years, getting into trouble, wandering. And then one day he popped into a little tent preaching that he heard going on. And he heard a Methodist preacher who was there by the name of George Whitfield preaching about the wrath of God that was gonna to come upon all those who had not turned to Jesus Christ as their savior. And right there in that moment, at the age of 20, Robbie Robinson put his faith in Jesus Christ. Two years later, still not overcome, still not getting over the grace and the mercy of God that pursued him. He sat down and he penned these lyrics. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melody of sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. We go, that's so beautiful. 
But what you probably don't know is after Robbie Robinson wrote that hymn, he turned his back on God. He walked away from Jesus Christ. He wanted nothing to do with God. He went back into the streets. He got back into the gangs. And for the next couple of decades, he lived in total rebellion to God. Until one day he got on a stagecoach. We call that an Uber today. And there was a young woman sharing that ride with him. And catch this. He doesn't know her. She doesn't know him. She's in there. They get to discussing a little bit. She goes, hey, have you heard about the song that everybody's singing all over England right now? It's called Come Thou Fount. She had no idea she was sitting in the stagecoach with the guy who wrote it. And he listened to her and he said, tell me more about it. And she said, here's the deal. The thing that grabs me the most in this song is not come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart. She goes, the line that gets me is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it for thy courts above. She looked at him and she said, isn't it wonderful that we can wander so far from God and he'll still take us back. And right there, Robbie Robinson repented over his own words that he had written. Church, God's grace is enough for you. God loves you with an everlasting love. He will not forsake you. I don't care where you've gone, it's never too late. Just turn back to Jesus. Forsake your wicked ways and turn and receive his grace. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.